0: I gave Ava a quarter this morning. It actually played really well into my sermon uh, because I last night told the story of a young boy who was walking home from school one day and he saw a coin on the ground. Uh, just like Ava just received this coin out of nowhere, he sees this coin on the ground. He bends down, he picks it up, and he puts it in his pocket. And he's very excited because. His parents taught him that God rewards those whom he's happy with, and so he thought to himself, man, God must really be happy with me. Perhaps Ava's thinking, God must really be happy with me, or at least Brandon's really happy with me because he gave me this quarter. So the boy made it all the way home. He walks into the house. He walks back to his bedroom, and he reaches into his pocket, and the coin is not there. What he discovers is a hole in his pocket about the size of that coin, and somewhere along the way... It had slipped through his pant leg, was now laying on the sidewalk for the next little boy to come by and find. I hope that Ava does not have any holes in her pockets. But he thought to himself, because his parents taught him that God punishes those whom he's not pleased with, he thought to himself, God must really be unhappy with me, right? Because I've lost this coin. And the question that I want us to start with this morning is, how often do we feel like that little boy? How often do we feel like him? When things are going well for you, you feel like you're doing what God wants and it seems like God is blessing you from the left and from the right. When only good things are happening around you and you think to yourself, God must really be pleased with me. God must really be pleased with me because the evidence is in all of the things that are going right for me in this moment. And so he must be happy with me. I must have done something in order to deserve this favor that I'm receiving from God. But then things shift. Something important gets taken away from you. Something doesn't go the way that you wanted it to go. Something bad happens or you make a mistake. Perhaps you make a mistake that you've been wrestling with for some time now. And so you think to yourself, God just doesn't love me the same today as he did yesterday. The evidence is in the reality that all of these things are going wrong or my circumstances are really difficult or I've done something that I shouldn't have and so God must not be pleased with me right now because this is the way that I'm feeling. And the reality is that we often feel like God's love increases or decreases based on our circumstances, based on what we've done, based on how we feel in the moment we feel like God's love is increasing or decreasing. If you were to chart this perception of God's love on a graph, then it would be a curvy line. One moment we're up here, and the next moment, perhaps as quickly as it happened for that little boy, we plummet and we're down here. We find that coin out of nowhere, and we think that God is very pleased with us. The next moment we lose the coin and we feel like God is not pleased with us, that he's unhappy with us. For one moment, it can feel like God loves us more than he ever has. And the next moment, we're left wondering where God has gone. One moment, he's our loving father. The next, he feels like our judge, our jury, and our executioner. And there are two situations, I think, that most often cause us to feel that shift, to feel that downward shift, somehow believing that God loves us less in this moment than he did in the last. The first is that we feel it when we are victims of evil. When bad things happen seemingly without purpose and through no fault of our own, we can be left wondering if God has removed his love from us and abandoned us to deal with those really difficult situations that did not come as a result of the things that we did. In the most obvious bi- uh, biblical illustration of this, Dave alluded to last week when we looked at Job. At the beginning of Job's account, he's described as blameless and upright. He's described as a man who feared God and shunned evil. In fact, God himself declared that Job was unmatched in his righteousness. In other words, he hadn't done anything that would have warranted Punishment from God, and yet God allowed disaster to come upon him. He lost his livestock, he lost his help, he lost his health, he lost every one of his children, and it left Job wondering, it left him wondering, at least for a time, if God really was merciful or if that he was all wrath, punishing even those who didn't deserve it. That's what Job is about. We get this whole section in the middle of Job kind of questioning and then his friends who are not such good friends come along and don't really encourage him all that well. And so he's wondering why it is that he's facing these difficult situations that he's in. You and I know all too well because of the sinful state of our fallen world that every single person, regardless of belief, will face hardship at various points in their lives, some much more than others. We don't come out of the waters of baptism and everything goes well with us the rest of our lives. The rain falls on the believer and the unbeliever. The sun shines on the believer and the unbeliever. So we know that we are all going to face difficult circumstances in our life. Oftentimes things that are outside of our control. Being laid off from work, not because you've been a poor performer, but because your company decided they just wanted to go in a different direction. Tornado comes out of nowhere and destroys your town and rips apart the home that you've lived in for decades. And you have to find some else, somewhere else to live. A debilitating chronic or terminal diagnosis that's handed down to you or to someone that you love. You discover that your spouse has been cheating on you with another person, even though you thought that your marriage was on solid ground. You take your eyes off your child for just a moment and they step into the road can happen as quickly as that. Every one of these things, none of them within our control, all of them can leave us feeling like God loves us less today than he did yesterday, wondering like Job why we've lost his favor. Because the circumstances around us are so difficult. Secondly, we feel this downward shift when we are agents of evil. So first we feel it when we are victims of evil, things that are outside of our control, And then we feel it when we are agents of evil. When we are the ones who have done something that we shouldn't have and we know it. When you're the one who's committed a crime, not only against another person, but more importantly against God. Because that's what sin is. It's committing a crime against God by doing something or living in a way that contradicts the way that God wants you to live. That God has called you to live. Last weekend, Dave also referenced King David, and he's our example here. Sleeping with another man's wife, conceiving a child out of wedlock, and through this adulterous affair, and then scheming to have this woman's husband murdered. David, who had once been described as a man after God's own heart, unlike Job, is anything but blameless here in this situation. It was his decision to do these awful, wicked things, Things knowing full well that God had commanded against coveting, and he had commanded against adultery, and he had commanded against stealing and against lying, and he had commanded against murder. In one fell swoop, David broke half of the Ten Commandments. Not to mention the fact that he had placed something else above God, the very first commandment, which is where all sin flows from. And so David was an agent of evil. Some of the Psalms that David wrote were penned not long after this particular incident. In Psalm 32, for example, after being confronted by God through his prophet, David writes in verses 3 and 4 When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And eventually, even within this song, David would come to understand that God's unfailing love towards him. But in the depth of his grief over this error, I'm sure he felt like God's love for him had somehow lessened or disappeared altogether. And I know that he felt that because I have felt that. We have all felt that when we've done something that we shouldn't have. And we wonder, does God love me less because of this thing that I've done when you and I are the ones who commit the crimes against God in sin, when you get fired from your job because of inappropriate behavior in your work, when you're the one caught cheating on your spouse or lusting after imaginary women on a computer screen or pursuing a sexual relationship with someone outside of a biblically defined marriage, when you're the one who's lied to the people around you, looked out for your own interests above others or sought after what the world has to offer instead of what God has to offer, then the weight of those crimes can make you feel like God loves you less. And even after, even after you repent and you commit to surrender that to God and you commit to live according to the way that He wants you to live, we still sometimes feel like the shoe is eventually going to drop. God can't leave these things unpunished. And so I wonder if he's still going to eventually call me to account for these things that I've done in my past. That at some point in time, maybe not now, maybe not next year, but maybe five, 10 years, God's lessened love for me is going to be revealed in how he's going to punish me for the things that I've done. And last weekend, we we looked at God's punishment. and Dave did such a great job walking us through that and explaining what that means in our lives. So two scenarios in which we feel that God's love for us has lessened. First, when we are victims of evil outside of our control, and when we are agents of evil, when we are the ones committing the crime. And I want you to notice that in these scenarios, how you perceive God's love is based almost completely on how you feel in the moment. That if you feel good about yourself, about your circumstances, or all the good things that you've done, then it feels like God is closer to you. But if you feel hateful towards yourself, or your circumstances take a downward turn, or you fall back into that same habit that you've been wrestling with for so many years of your Christian life, then it can feel like God and his love are far away. It's the peaks and the valleys of us experiencing God's love but we've learned that God is not affected by how we feel. He's not different in how I feel about him. How I feel about God doesn't change his nature. It doesn't change his character. It doesn't change who he is in any way. God is not affected by how I feel about him. And so if I were to chart God's love, It wouldn't be a series of wavy lines of peaks and valleys. It would be a perfectly horizontal, straight line that extends from eternity back here to eternity over here. Never faltering, never wavering, always the same, always constant. Listen to how Paul describes this kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. He says, love is patient. Many of us have had this read at our weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Paul uses the most extreme words that he can. It always does these things and it never fails. There is a constancy that Paul is describing there when he talks about biblical Love And since God is the author of love, and since God is love, then it must be that God himself displays this same kind of constancy and this same kind of consistency. But this sermon is about evidence. And so I want us to look at two evidences that this is the kind of love that God displays. And I want us to look at it within the context of our Bibles, because we can't look at how we feel to know who God is. How I feel doesn't change who he is. It doesn't make who he is. And so I want us to look at evidence in our Bibles that I hope will begin to slowly replace that curvy line of feeling God's love with that horizontal line of God's constant and consistent love. And so first, the evidence of God's consistent love is found in how he deals with those whom he loves in the Old Testament, The evidence of God's consistent love is found in how he deals with those whom he loves in the Old Testament. When we started this series, Dave said that we sometimes have this perception that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament or that something about God changed between these two sections of our Bibles. That we perceive Old Testament God to be angry and mean and wrathful and quick to punish Whereas we get to our New Testaments and we see a God who is all about love and mercy and forgiveness and allowing us to live life on our own terms. And the reality is that God has not changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the same God between the two sections of our Bibles. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and his nature and his character remain the same today as they did when he created the world and everything in it and when he created you and me and it will always remain that way. And I believe that as you read more of your Bible, as you open up the pages and you read your Old Testament and you read your New Testament, that that contradiction begins to go away. Why? Because I begin to see God working in the events of history, and how his plan and his story has always been the same. There is an amazing consistency and unity from beginning to end in my Bible. We begin in the garden, we end in the garden. It's all the same. It's the same story. It's the same God. How do I know? Because if you look closely, As God deals with the people from the very beginning of creation, when it comes to the people that He loves, every act of punishment, every act of punishment. For sin is accompanied by mercy and restoration. It's always there. When Adam and Eve disobeyed Him in the garden by doing the exact opposite of what God had told them to do, He cast them out of the garden. But what did He do first? He clothed them. He killed an animal in order to put clothes on their body. After he punished the wickedness of the world with a global flood, he he set his rainbow in the sky as as a promise that he wouldn't do it again. And then he established Noah and his family to restart. God could have wiped everybody out, but he allowed a restart through Noah and his family. When the people of Babel sought to outdo God with a tower that reached into heaven's, He scattered them in order to protect them from their own pride, which would have eventually led to their downfall. When Abraham and Sarah distrusted, they stepped out on their own and decided they wanted to do things their way. God still kept his promise to them. He still kept his promise to Abraham that through him he would establish a nation and that through this nation all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God kept his promise to Abraham by establishing this nation, and it's especially with this nation, which makes up the bulk of our Old Testament. It's especially with this often faithless and wandering nation, the Israelites, that we see the greatest evidence of God's consistent love displayed through Old Testaments. And over and over again, we see the same pattern. We see rebellion and disobedience and sin We see God discipline in order to restore. We see them repent. And then we see restoration over and over again. This is the pattern that we see throughout our pages. And the book of Jeremiah finds the Israelites right in the middle of this discipline phase that God had warned them was coming. That God told them because of what they had been doing that he was going to allow them to be removed from the land that he had promised them that he was going to send a godless nation in, in order to conquer them. And that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians come in, they destroy the city, they destroy the temple, they take most of the Israelites with them out of that land. They're right in the middle of God's punishment. It's a very, very difficult season for the Israelites. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Why is he weeping? Because the beginning of his book is all about the devastation that's coming to the Israelites. The awful things that they're facing as a result of their disobedience. And yet right in the middle of it, we get Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. we talked about a while back. Right in the middle of the discipline, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And all the way up to This verse in chapter 30, the story had been bleak, grimy, ugly, difficult. But here, and in chapters 30 and 31, the tone changes completely. Listen to how God speaks to his people who have disobeyed him over and over again, even to the point of allowing this land to be taken from them. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 31. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and there will be, they will be my people. There is nothing sweeter and for God to say, I will be your God and you will be mine. This is what the Lord says. The people who survived the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. That kind of language doesn't speak to inconsistent, semi constant love. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, with unfailing kindness. And when God uses that term everlasting, he's describing a kind of love that was initiated by him before this people had a chance to earn it. Love that predates them. Because from the very beginning of creation, he had them in mind and he loved them before they could obey or disobey him. When Amanda and I decided that we wanted to have a child, we loved Parker before we knew he was Parker. We loved him before we knew whether he was a boy or a girl. We loved him before we knew what his personality was going to be like, before we knew how difficult he was going to make life for us at times, right? We loved him before he obeyed us. And we loved him before he disobeyed us. That's what God is talking about when he talks about this everlasting love. And so, because there was nothing they did to earn it in the first place, there was nothing they could do to cause it to go away or cause it to decrease. That's what unearned love is. Now, compare that language to what John says about God's love in 1 John 4 19. We love because why? We love because he first loved us. That's initiation language. God loved me. God loved us before we could do anything to earn or deserve. And so his love wasn't just a perfectly horizontal line and at the moment of our birth began to waver. It remains the same constantly. It's sure. It's unwavering. It's unfaltering. And so if it was true for these often faithless and wondering people then it must be true of me whom God has called and rescued. So the evidence of God's unchanging love is found in how he deals with those whom he loves in the Old Testament. It points to how he loves me today because he is the same God today as he was then. The same God who rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, and the same God that brought them through the desert, and the same God that provided for them and led them into captivity and led them back is the same God that loves me today. That's the first piece of evidence. Secondly, the evidence of God's consistent love is found in how Jesus deals with sinners in the New Testament. The evidence of God's consistent love is found in how Jesus deals with sinners in the New Testament. I think it is sometimes difficult for us to get our minds around God of the Old Testament, our God in the Old Testament because of how he deals with his people and because God the Father is so much higher than us. His ways are not our ways, and sometimes it's hard for us to understand his ways. But if it's difficult for us to understand God's love through God the Father in our Old Testament, then we should look at God the Son In our New Testament, who is just as much God as God the Father. One author says that in Jesus, we see God's heart. We see God's heart walking around on two legs. We see the heart of God the Father taking on human flesh and walking around on two legs. And so if we want to know how God really feels about his people, then we should look to how Jesus interacts with people to how he interacts with those whom he encounters while he's on this earth. And what we see most clearly in every interaction that Jesus has, especially with those who are labeled as sinners, is that he is not turned away by the messy circumstances and lives of the people whom he comes across. He's not turned away by. In fact, it's just the opposite. He leans in closer to sinners who approach him looking for healing. The interaction that I want us to look at in particular, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, is Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. As Jesus is approached by a man who had been infected with leprosy, Mark records that this man had come to Jesus begging on his knees to be made clean. That's a significant statement, to be made clean. See, lepers were considered the outcasts of the outcasts. They're often sent outside the city to live in colonies of other lepers where they would live the rest of their lives because they weren't allowed to be among the people. They were forbidden to touch anything or to be touched by anyone. This man was considered to be unclean inside and out. And his uncleanness was believed to be contagious, and in certain ways it was contagious, that anybody who touched him would also be declared unclean, and they would be risk being labeled as a leper, and they themselves would be cast out just like he was. Now, Jesus had a lot of interactions with sinners, and I could point to any one of those interactions to make this point, but I want us to look at this man with leprosy because leprosy is such an illustration of how sin infects. That that external picture of disease gives us that internal picture of what sin does to us. As it ravishes our body and, and causes separation between us and other people and between us and God. And I'm sure it was believed that this man had done something sinful in his life in order to deserve this skin disease that he had. And so he received no pity from the people around him, especially the religious people who had written him off. And may we never become so religious that we begin writing off the sinners, because we ourselves are sinners. And we contrast this with Jesus. You and I cannot fathom how clean Jesus was during his earthly ministry. By every facet of God's law, he was perfect. He was holy. He was without error, without blemish, innocent and pure. Jesus was without sin. And this is what this leprous man is approaching. And the difference between them couldn't be starker. Now, I'm a pretty clean guy. I don't like dirt. I don't like mud. I don't like to get my hands dirty. But I have a nine-year-old son, and he has no inhibitions about jumping into muddy puddles. I blame Peppa Pig for that. He'll go out and he'll just jump. In fact, just this morning, I had gotten ready for church. I'm sitting in my preaching pants, as some people say, that I own. And I'm on the couch, and he sits on the couch with his nasty, dirty, muddy shoes on. And he places one of them right on my pants. And he says, tie my shoe. And I said, get your foot off my pants. (laughs) because I'm not changing these. These are what I preach in. (laughs) I'm not changing my pants, right? Like like when he comes in from the backyard like he found a cesspool to do some diving in, I'm not leaning in for a hug, right? Because in general, clean is off-put by unclean. That when I'm clean, I I don't wanna be around unclean. I don't want that to infect me, I don't want that dirt on me, that mud on me. Now, you would think that Jesus, the clean one, capital C, capital O, the clean one, would have no choice but to be repulsed by someone as dirty as this leprous man. It wasn't just the skin disease. It was all of it. It was the choices that he had made, the ways that he had Rejected God, the times that he had broken God's law and sought to live life on his own terms instead of living the way that God wanted him to live. Jesus was the farthest thing from unclean, and this man was the farthest thing from clean. And there's no reason they should even occupy the same area of ground, let alone touch one another. But look at what Mark records beginning in verse 41. He says, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. And I wonder, I wonder, if the moment Jesus' hand made contact with the skin of this man, if there was an audible gasp among that crowd that had gathered. Especially among Jesus' disciples, who didn't yet understand fully what was going on and what was happening What he did as a Jewish man, and especially as a Jewish rabbi, as a Jewish teacher, was unconscionable. It was unheard of. You didn't see this happening at this time. But hear the next words out of Jesus' mouth and see what happens. Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean cleansed. Rather than the leprosy and uncleanness of this man causing Jesus to be repulsed by him, Jesus leans into his affliction. He leaned not only into the skin disease, but also into the choices and the rebellion and the sin. If Jesus, the perfectly, the perfect personification of God's love, heaven's heart walking around on two legs, is not repulsed by the messy circumstances of those whom he encountered while he was on this earth. How much more now? How much more now, as he sits at the right hand of God our Father, is he leaning into us? How much more now is he leaning into our lives and our messy circumstances and our sin? Our lives don't turn him away. Rather, our messy circumstances and sinful choices cause Jesus to lean in more when we come to him for healing. They cause him to lean in more into our lives. And this is something that we need to be reminded of as we encounter those downward shifts in our perception of how God feels for us and whether or not he loves us the same today as he did yesterday. That as we wrestle with the feeling that God's love is wavering and inconsistent and inconstant, all the evidence that we see through the pages of our Bibles is to the contrary. See, not only has God shown himself to be consistent in how he's always dealt with his people, but he also gave us his son as the perfect personification of the consistency of his love. We can trust in the reality that even when we, like Job, are victims of difficult circumstances that are outside of our control or when we, like David, are agents of evil and have been the ones to willingly choose our way over God's, that the affection that he feels for us remains the same. Unchanged. Unaffected. Unwavered. And when we, like this leper sinner, come to Jesus For healing, he doesn't recoil in disgust at our sin, but he leans in all the more to compassionately assure us that his loving touch is enough to heal us completely, fully. Be clean, as he said to this man. And in considering this story and the dozens of other encounters that Jesus had with sinners that are recorded in our New Testaments, Author Dane Ortland writes, there was something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When, Jewish, when Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. It was a complete reversal of the system that this man had been living under his entire life. And this is what the church is not a bunch of people who have it all together and a bunch of people who live perfect lives, but a collection of sinners who have been deeply changed by the loving touch of our compassionate Savior whose love never wavers, never falters, is always constant and ever consistent. That's what it means to be made clean by Jesus Christ. Unearned, undeserved, Love that was initiated by God and love that continues by God even in spite of my obedience or my disobedience. That's what we're all invited into. All who call on the name of Jesus, who lean into him for healing. He leans in and he says, be clean. And we are clean from the inside and out. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we can look at him as the perfect illustration of how you love your people. Remind us of these great evidences of your love for us that are found in our Bibles, that even in those moments where we feel like you love us less, that we would recognize that your love never changes. And as we recognize that, may we draw closer to you. That in our sin and in our brokenness, we would lean in for healing and we would see Jesus' hand reach out, touch us, and make us clean. And Father, for those in this room who have not yet experienced that healing touch, I pray that you draw them to yourself as only you can, and that we would continue to see hearts awakened. Soul saved just as we did last night by your healing touch. We love you, Father. We thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to experience that today, this is your invitation to come.